Good morning, everyone. It's Dr. P, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Inspirational Podcast. Hey, just before I get started, I, I wanted to say a quick thank you to everybody out there who's been listening to the podcast. You know, the numbers of downloads continue to grow. I just passed 3,000 downloads, and it's exciting, you know? Anything that you achieve in life takes time, and uh, that can be another podcast. But I just want to say thank you for every single one of you with, for your tremendous feedback and uh, and your support and your ability to share or your desire to share my podcast with others, and I hope you keep doing it. feels good to have other people really, you know, discover themselves and make a life worth living, but... I want to say just one very special shout out to one of my good friends. Her name is Haley. And Haley and I have been working together as a team now for a few months. She's a young college girl who is really on her way to someplace great. You know, the time spent with her has been amazing. She's taught me so much about life and I I think I've taught her the same. And um, when you can foster wonderful relationships like the ones that her and I have developed um, you know, it, it kind of reflects about what I'm about to say in this podcast. So Haley, if you're listening, you know, I really appreciate you and I hope we have many more years of time spent together. So I'm sitting in my office and I'm consulting with a young patient. It's a young woman. She's a junior in college. And I look down at all her medications and I see there's one there called lorazepam. And lorazepam is used for depression in today's modern world. As a matter of fact, there are tens of millions of people taking these types of medications for depression. So the question is, what chemical are they trying to affect in our brain? What's going on? Think of this. You know, brain needs a certain amount of serotonin. This is what they're telling us. We need a certain amount of serotonin in order to function normally. But when you don't have enough of it and you seem to run out of it, it's like running out of gas. Now, that's a pretty simple explanation, right? Well, that's what Big Pharma wanted you to know. That inside your brain, you have a chemical imbalance. You do not produce enough serotonin. And as a consequence of that, you feel depressed and out of gas. So we're going to prescribe a medication for you that will help increase the production of your serotonin so that you can feel better and less depressed. That's it. Nice, simple, clean, easy paradigm. And guess what? Tens of millions of people are actually taking it because it just seems to make sense to our brain. And for so many that take it, they get tremendous results. So it must be true. Yeah, that's cool. But that's where it takes a little bit of a twist. This is why we have an FDA. We have to evaluate what's being said. And we have to be able to um, put it through a rigorous testing protocol of placebo-blinded double, uh, <laughs> placebo-controlled double-blinded uh, testing to make sure that the drug is actually doing what it's supposed to do. So I want to give you a quick history about this stuff to begin with. You know, it's like serotonin. Low serotonin causes this problem. Okay, maybe that could be true. There's a researcher named Irving Kirsch from Harvard Medical School. He's one of the leading people in placebo controls and, of course, now um, uh, brain chemistry associated with depression. And he said, you know what? I've been looking at these drugs and these medications and they're not actually having the effect on the brain 
that the drug company says they're having. I mean, if I took a match and I lit the curtains on fire, they're going to burn. That's just as simple. You can see it. But if I light the curtains on fire and they don't burn and you smell a little bit of smoke, is it from the curtains or is it from the match? You don't really know. So it would make sense that our researchers in our medical community would do their due diligence to make sure that we're safe as consumers of these medications. So Kirsch, who had studied these medications, said, I don't think they're having the effect that they said they were. And he began to question the evidence that depression is caused by an imbalance of serotonin in the first place. And where did they even get that? Where did that even come up? I kind of asked that that question myself. I'm like, where did they come up with that? Because there's other chemicals in the brain. Why'd they pick that one? There's a little story to it. 1952 in a hospital in New York. There's a whole bunch of people being treated in a hospital ward for tuberculosis. And they're taking this medication called Marsalid. It's not working. But something's happening to these people. They're really euphoric and happy. And they're very agitated in a good way. So after they get done with the study, they go, hey, you know that drug Marsalid that we were using? Yeah. It kind of made people really feel happy and euphoric. Why don't we think about giving it to these people that are depressed and see what happens? They said, oh, pretty good idea. And by the way, we're going to start with Marsalid, but let's add a few more others that we can you know, become more isolated with the serotonin component to it. So they have two or three other medications. One of them is called Ipronid and the other one's Amipronine. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ones. So they decide, let's take a look at these medications and see what they're going to do to these people. And maybe they can reduce their depression and increase their serotonin levels. They were still somewhat in the dark about what's going on until in 1965, a researcher, a British psychiatrist, his name was Alec Copper. He decides to come up with a wild theory and says, what if all the drugs that we're using are actually increasing the levels of serotonin in the brain? Now, this is the way things begin anyway. You come up with something, you start, you come up with a theory, and then you test it and see what you get. So if researchers were right, low levels of serotonin would equal depression. Hmm. Okay. So in the 1970s, a few years later, we were able to figure out how to add certain chemical brews and cocktails that the patients could ingest that would significantly lower their serotonin levels. And if you could significantly lower the serotonin level based on the hypothesis, then the patients would become depressed. But unfortunately, that's not what they found. There's another amazing researcher. He's actually the granddaddy of them all when it comes to depression and uh, serotonin. His name is David Healy at the University of Bangor in the UK. This guy has written more on the history of antidepressants than anybody in the world. If anybody knows them, he does. What were his conclusions? He said, listen, there was never any basis that low serotonin promotes depression. And I stop and pause for a moment. I'm going to say it again. There was never any basis that low serotonin promotes depression. He said it's basically all just marketing by the drug company. We never had enough science on this. And even when we started looking at it, we couldn't support it. It's an unsupported uh, scientific uh, paradigm. It doesn't work. So sometime in the early 90s, all these medications started coming out. We started prescribing them like crazy. And again, tens of millions of people started taking Prozac and Wellbutrin, Xanax, and 
you know, lorazepam now and Concerta, Stratera. There's all these different medications. It's like, okay. And every drug company is jumping on board to sell them to the public. Funny thing though, Healy says, in those early 90s, there wasn't a single researcher who would be quoted or would even speak about the fact that low serotonin caused depression. Their reputations were on the line. They didn't want to say that because it wasn't true. They didn't know any of that. They were just being sold as medications to the public because it was an easy message to sell. You have an imbalance in your brain. You do not produce enough serotonin. Therefore, we give you a medication which kicks up the serotonin level and you'll feel good again. You'll start to feel like yourself, like everybody else, a sense of joy and happiness. This is what patients were told. Researcher Irving Kirsch at Harvard Medical School, he also gets the data and begins to study it. And he says unequivocally that there is no direct relationship between serotonin levels and depression. It just doesn't exist. Yes, the drug companies are going to continue to sell it and people are going to have changes, but it's not because the drug's doing anything scientifically to the patient. Hmm. Interesting, huh? So the drug companies keep selling it, but the researchers then sit back for a second and take a deeper look at it and say, well, maybe it's not the serotonin. Maybe there are other levels that are off. Maybe it's the uh, dopamine and maybe it's norepinephrine. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's glutamate. They didn't know. But they were still under the same premise that it's a brain imbalance, a chemical imbalance that causes the depression. So let's just keep looking. They tested everything under the sun, but something kept coming up that perplexed them. The researchers, that is. They said, the drugs that increase the levels of serotonin in the brain have the same modest effects as those that lowered the serotonin levels in the brain. It's like, what? Yeah, drugs that bring it up and drugs that bring it down, you get the same result. These drugs were also increasing the levels of norepinephrine and dopamine. And that wasn't changing anything either. It didn't matter what happened to the chemistry of the brain through drugs and medication. They got the same outcome. It was always the same. So what was the common denominator between these people and all these medications? They're all different people, all different medications, having all different effects. So what could be the one thing that was consistent with all of them? Very simple. According to Kirsch, the Harvard medical researcher, he said, it's belief. These people believed that that medication would work because they trusted their doctor and their doctor must know better than them. And then as a consequence of that, they had a profound placebo effect, which changed their depression. Now, I say that to you, not as, you know, in judgment on the medication or anything else, just as an inquiry to the truth. Listen, placebos are amazing. They work like crazy. That means placebo is, means you. You're healing yourself with your mind, with your mindset. And if you take a medication like Prozac, for instance, does Prozac significantly change chemical production that changes brain? The answer is there's no evidence of that, right? There is no evidence of that. But when you took it and you knew you would feel better, then you felt better. And if you took it figuring you'll never get better, then you didn't. It goes right back to the belief factor. That was really, really the key. The Harvard researcher Kirsch said this. He said, after 20 years of researching this at the highest level, I have come to the belief that the notion that depression is caused by chemical imbalance is just an accident of history produced by scientists initially misreading what they were seeing and the drug companies selling that misperception to the world to cash in. And so according to Kirsch, 
the primary explanation for depression in our culture starts to fall apart. The idea that you feel terrible because of a chemical imbalance was built on a series of mistakes and errors is as close to being proved wrong as you ever get in the field of science. So if it isn't a serotonin imbalance that causes depression, what is it? Well, I think you'll find that that answer is multifactorial. There's many things that are going to be associated with a depressed state. But right now, I want to talk about probably the most polarizing one that most researchers are jumping all over, and it's having the the greatest effect. And it's not drugs and medication either. It's simply this, that depression is caused from loneliness. Choke on that one for a minute. What? Yeah, depression's not caused from a chemical imbalance because of a serotonin uh, issue. It's caused in fact, because of loneliness. We are a lonely community. I shouldn't even call it community. That's one of the reasons we're lonely. But think of this. While we were busy thinking about what's wrong inside the brain that's causing the depression, the researchers, the the drug companies, the, the, the professionals out there, they forgot to think about what's going on outside the brain that causes that, which is like your life. Think about your brain almost like a little island on its own. And it's got all these bridges that come and go to the island. That means that information is coming to the island and then the island sending information out. It's a constant evolution, the brain. It's constantly changing by things that are going on around us. And when that brain becomes lonely based upon, you know, the outside world that fails to support us, oof, now you're in trouble. Is that going to change the brain's capacity to fire? Yes. Will it change the structure of the brain? Yes. Will loneliness promote depression? Yes. And I think I'm going to help you to really understand that in the next few minutes. If you've listened to any of the other podcasts I've done in the past about stress, you know that you produce stress hormones throughout the day chronically. Uh, Of course, you do it acutely too when you're being chased by something or you have an acute stress reaction. But let's just talk about the average person is basically just producing a whole bunch of stress chemistry each day when they go to work, when they get up and deal with kids and finances and transportation and aging parents and obesity and blood pressure. I mean, it just continues to go on and on. So when we feel as though we're under the gun, we start to produce a whole bunch of stress chemistry known as cortisol. But interestingly, when you're lonely, you produce as much stress hormone, cortisol, as being attacked by a stranger. Think about it. You're out on the street, 10 o'clock at night. Somebody accosts you. They beat you. And you're stressed out over it. You have just as much stress as when you are completely alone by yourself. Well, that makes a lot of sense to my initial statement that depressive states, they're driven by loneliness. You know, as this researcher, Sheldon Cohen, one of my favorites, um, he did a research study about people who were isolated, which meant they were lonely to those that weren't. And he found that if you were an isolated and lonely person, that you were three times more likely to catch a cold than people who weren't. You're like, oh God, is that really important? Well, yeah, it's the beginning of something. I want you to think of this one. Lisa Bergman, another uh, neuroscientist researcher. She says, listen, I followed a whole bunch of people hundreds of people, for nine years. Some of them were very lonely and unconnected to their social world around them, and others were completely connected. And what they found, what she found, 
was that people that were isolated and lonely were two to three times more likely to have died during that nine-year span. Now, if that doesn't catch your attention, holy crap. She saw things like cancer, heart disease, respiratory problems like COPD. They just got worse over and over and over. And she said it, that loneliness is like living with obesity. It increases your risk of an early death. Loneliness itself is deadly. It's deadly. And we believe, of course, that it causes depression. Interestingly, though, we needed to know what comes first. Is it the depression that comes and then causes us to retract and be lonely? Or is it the loneliness that causes the depression? That would be a good thing to know, wouldn't it? So this is what happened. So researchers hypnotized a group of people, two groups of people. One group was very disconnected from the world and very lonely. And the other group was the complete opposite, very connected to the world. And during the hypnosis, they had asked or they had, I don't know how they do it, but they stimulate these people to try to remember a certain set of events in their lives that were opposite of the way they were. So in other words, if you were somebody that had been uh, the disconnected person, they asked you to remember moments in your life where you felt really connected. Remember, they're under hypnosis, so they really deeply believe this. They did the same to the other group and said, we want you to find a time in your life when you were completely alone, dejected by yourself and completely disconnected to the world. Remember, these are people that are naturally already, that are supposed to be connected. And then afterwards, they gave them a personality test, um, which they gave before they even started. And they found that the people with the low, um, the low ability to connect with the reduced capacity to connect with anybody, the lonely people, they were anxious, they had low self-esteem, they were pessimistic, afraid of what other people would think of them, all these different negative things. But afterwards they found that when they were made to feel happier during the hypnosis, their test scores changed significantly and they were no longer considered depressed by the personality traits. Yet the people who started the hypnosis therapy that were connected and happy, but were made to feel or to remember, to be hypnotized into feeling disconnected and alone, their post-analysis of their personality traits showed that they were falling deeply into depression. So we knew now, without a doubt, that loneliness precedes the depression. So loneliness, we know, produces depression. It's not depression that produces loneliness. Here's an interesting statistic. I really like this one. If you increase your loneliness by simply 15%, you've increased your symptoms of depression by eight times. There's not a lot of leeway here, folks. You've got to be connected to others. You're going to be in trouble. That's for sure. When you really think of humans, right? Let's go back to the plant, to the savanna in Africa, where you know, humans walked the earth 65,000 to 300,000 years ago, depending on what you believe. It doesn't matter. I don't know, but I know it was, wasn't yesterday, right? These people had to work together. And if they didn't, we wouldn't even be here today. They had to work together in a team. They had 
you know, they were delivering, they were having babies, they were caring for children, they were hunting, they were building shelter. They did all these things together. And because they cooperated together, they began to develop deep social connections. And those connections are really, really important for human survivability. So when you're in a team environment where everybody's together and working together as a unit, that's when you're connected, which reduces your depressive state. But if you were ejected from the group, for instance, and you were off on your own, you were in trouble especially back then, but even now, if you're ejected from a group of people and you have no one around you, nobody that's caring for you and you feel alone and isolated, man, you could be in serious jeopardy. You could succumb to sickness and disease and there's no one there to help you, no one to help you with your shelter, nobody to help you you know, to, to eat and to hunt. It, you wind up alone, man, and there's not many people that can handle that. Humans are not meant to be alone. Loneliness promotes the damn depression. We need to stick together. And if you're fortunate enough to even come back into the group, your brain is telling you to calm down and start working with the group or they'll kick you out again. And then you'll feel depressed. Being outside of things makes you feel depressed. Man, if you haven't had this in your life once or twice, come on, man, you're not even living. I mean, there are plenty of times in my own life where I'm struggling with certain relationships and I isolate myself. That's what men tend to do. I do anyway. You know, sometimes I isolate myself. And during those moments, those times, I feel slightly depressed if I can say that. I, I guess I'm going to say it out loud. I feel depressed. Why? Because I'm no longer connected to the group around me. I've literally become angry and upset and I've separated myself from the group. And by the way, that's a bad thing. And if you listen to my other podcast before, you know that when you're stressed out, you want to become socially connected. You have that chemical oxytocin in your brain that's being secreted, that social hormone that wants you to go out and hang out with people that love and care about you. That's the stuff that makes the brain go. That's what connects us together. That's what reduces depression and formulates even greater connections with other people and the group. We need this. We need human interaction. It's imperative to overcome these negative emotional states known as depression. You know, it's been said that humans need tribes. We need a tribe around us. Human needs tribes just like the bees need the hives. We need each other, whether you like it or not. There might not be people you want to hang out with. I understand that. But whoever you can spend time with that understands you, that you understand them, that makes all the difference in the world. That's human connection and that will lower depressive states. Are you one of those people that struggles to sleep at night? Let's just say you're alone, of course, you know, you don't know, you hear pipes in the wall, you hear creaks in the, in the walls, something, you just, it's unsettling. You just don't get a good night's sleep. Or maybe you're that person whose spouse is away or your kids are sleeping out somewhere and you're alone and you're, on, you're in your own house. Do you sleep well? Well, I don't either. I don't sleep well. I sleep with one eye open. And why is that? Because those that I've built connections with are not there to protect me. To, I mean, listen, I'm the great protector because I'm in my own house. But if my wife says, hey, Pete, wake up, I think I heard something. Well, I'm going to get up and take care of it. But I needed her to tell me that I need to connect with somebody. So I have somebody in my life and I focus on that and I want to stay connected to that person, my wife and my children. By doing that, I'm going to sleep better. So I started thinking about this and I was looking up some research on sleep and what stress does to it. And I came across a study by this um I forget who did the study, but it was, uh, actually it was Kirsch from, um, from Harvard. He had um, traveled out to the Dakotas, the North and South Dakota in America, in the uh, Northern uh, Midwest. 
and he found a religious community, a farming community known as the Hutterites, H-U-T-T-E-R-I-T-E-S, the Hutterites. Now, these Hutterites were like total studs. You know, people lived like to a hundred. They were well-functional. They didn't have divorce. They worked together. So he chose them and he said, I'm going to go check them out. And this is what he wanted to do because he knew a lot about this. He said, people, when they're stressed and they're unhappy and they're depressed, they have a hard time sleeping because of this phenomenon known as micro-awakenings, which means that the brain pulls out of the REM sleep quite often all night long. Now, you may not notice you're doing it, but you're never going to get a deep full night's sleep when you got one eye open because you just feel depressed because you're lonely. It's the loneliness that does that. So he decided, you know what? I'm going to hook all these people up and do polysonographies on them and see how they sleep. Almost none of them had any micro awakenings. They were a tribe together that worked together so beautifully and had been doing this for literally a couple of generations, many generations, a couple hundred years, right? So they had instilled this oneness in this community, which was so important, and they are the living epitome of it. The researchers said that they believed that these people were the least depressed and the most connected people they had ever seen because they had almost zero micro-awakenings on scientific inquiry. Things have changed quite a bit in our world. Technology has come in and it's wonderful. It is. It's got so many awesome attributes, but there are some caveats associated with it as well. You know, I grew up in rural Massachusetts and there was eight of us kids and there was another 50 kids in the neighborhood. Our doors were open all the time. We communicated. We were in each other's homes. I can remember sitting in the, not sitting, I was in the kitchen doing the dishes for me and my other nine family members, kind of a punishment (laughs) for being a knucklehead, right? And uh, my friend Jeff from next door, he'd knock on the door. Hey, Pete, what's up? He'd come up and sit down at the table. We have conversation while I was doing the dishes. Then his sister Trish would come in and we'd do the same thing. And then I would go to their house. And then I go down the street to Billy Gage's house and we play, you know, games outside. 52 Scatter, which is a fun game. Tin Cantalino, I'm saying these for my brothers and sisters who are probably listening to my podcast. They, we were playing games. I absolutely loved it. It was some of the best stuff ever. And it was a connection. It was a time in life back in the late 60s, early 70s, when people were more community driven, where depression was less of an issue as it is today. Today, we drive down the street, we wave quick to the neighbor, we go in, we shut the garage door, and we just, we don't talk to anybody. And listen, I'm also sometimes the same guy that does that. I want to get home. I work really hard. I work a number of hours. I want to come in and spend time with my family. So that's where I get my connection is with my wife and my kids. But I'll tell you this, we're still lonely in our own homes. We can have family in the home, but we don't communicate. We don't sit and have dinner. We don't talk about school. We don't make love the way we used to. We don't talk about problems anymore. It's like, what's going on? You're lonely in your own house. Is it possible? Sure is. Man, I did a podcast on this not long ago. I had struggled in my own marriage for a little bit of time. Of course, everything is fixable with communication, but I remember just laying in my own bed, sitting there thinking, I feel alone and isolated. I know she's next to me, but we don't seem to communicate very well. I don't feel that sense of fulfillment. And then, of course, we dialogued it and started to figure things out and you get back on track again. But now I understand that these are real life problems of today. We need to foster and build connections, not only out there with other people in the community, but also at home. By the way, you do not need a lot of people. You literally only need a single person, if you will, to just rely on that you can have conversation with. Remember that if you're in a very busy environment, like you're at a Pats game and everybody's cheering and it's awesome, you know, not anymore because they're out of the playoffs. But let's say you're, you're outside, you're, you're doing something amazing, you're with a bunch of people, you're still lonely. 
When you're on uh, Grand Central Station, New York City, tons of people, lonely. You're in a hospital ward because you're sick. Doctors and nurses are caring for you, lonely. You're like, Doc, why do you say that? Because it's a simple premise, how to get over the loneliness. You have to be able to have a communication where you're giving something to that person, some sense of value from yourself. So if you give yourself to the team and they embrace you and you embrace them, you've just overcome the loneliness and now you reset the entire brain. You don't need medication. What you need is the connection. But not to connect doesn't mean, or to connect doesn't mean you need 10 of these connections. It's great if you have 10, but all you have to do is start with one. So you could think about rekindling relationships with somebody around you that you haven't talked to in a while or somebody that you do talk to. Maybe you go over and you help them with a project at their home. Maybe you babysit for them, for their kids, so they can go out for a night of dinner. You've got to do things that connect you. And as you begin to connect and you understand that you're doing it for a purpose, you're lowering your potential to suffer from depression. Holy moly, we do not want to be lonely and depressed. You're going to die soon. Matter of fact, check this out. The odds of premature death from air pollution, meaning that you're going to die too early, is 5% from air pollution. From obesity, that number rises to 20% increase in an early death. Excessive alcohol consumption, 30% probability that you're going to die an earlier death. But loneliness, 50% increase. Loneliness is deadly. You can't be lonely. You don't need lorazepam, for instance. You actually need human interaction and connection. It's been here since the beginning of time. It's the most lovely thing. It's wonderful to connect as well. Then you release the oxytocin. You protect your heart. You protect your digestive system. You feel good about yourself and it starts to cascade and build connection. But I can tell you this, if you go the other direction and you feel completely lost and overwhelmed by it all, then every time you're around other people, you're going to retract. You're going to see them as threats. Matter of fact, we've seen PET scans of people that have been, you know, seriously disconnected from the world and lonely. We looked at their PET scans and showed them pictures of social, uh, social injustices. And within 150 milliseconds, that's pretty fast. Their brains would pick it up and go, oh my God, there's a threat. There's a threat. There's a threat. Then they took all these other people that had been really connected to their social community and felt not lonely, but really, I don't know when to use it again, just connected and happy. Well, they didn't see the threat for 300 milliseconds. That's two times longer. What does that even mean? It means that people who are lonely look for the threat quickly all the time and they see almost everything as a threat. And as a consequence of that, they get stuck in this awful behavior of retracting because they believe that people are going to want to affect them in a negative way. So they act that way. And much of this is unconscious. They don't even know they're doing it. And then they sit in the corner and they've got this puss on their face. They have a body language that says, don't talk to me. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of loneliness, begets more loneliness and becomes more depressive. And it just keeps going until the depression has reached such a point where you're destroying yourself. And then they have to use medications, which don't work anyway. <laughs> you know what? If you've got a semblance of brain left, you could say, I need this medication because I'm this bad. It goes back to the same premise. It's the placebo itself. So I'm not going to tell you what to do, all right? That's not the point of this podcast. It's to teach you something about human brain that you may not have known. So I'm going to recap it and just quickly say that the paradigm that you have altered concentrations of serotonin in your brain and that's why you're depressed 
is faulty. We have no science to back that up. We have plenty of medications, plenty of them, which Big Pharma is pumping out and telling you something very simple that your brain can embrace, that you have a chemical imbalance, we'll give you a medication to rebalance you, and then you'll feel better. Then you can go about your day. For the rest of your life, by the way. So if you're 18 and you take the drug, you're going to take it to your 90. If you ever make it there, because you're still going to be depressed, but you're going to feel a little bit better and your body's going to continue to break down as a consequence of all this that's going on. Or you could decide this. You know what? I know I take the lorazepam and the, and the Prozac and the Zoloft and I feel better. But really, maybe I feel better just because I think I'll feel better by taking it. Okay, so there you go. You don't take it and you think you feel better. You do. It's like, what? You're under full control of this. And you need to get yourself connected to other people. If you're a college student today, spend time with people in study groups and have fun and laughter and go out to the student union and have fun. Go exercise in the gym together. All these social connections reduce your depression. And if you feel any depression, I'll guarantee you it's because you've been spending way too much time alone, not only physically, but in your mind, not communicating, becoming withdrawn and starting to get bummed out and your behavior just magnifies. It becomes you know, cyclical, which is no good. Spending time with people is not only to help avoid the depression, but it's to gain joy and happiness and really have a sense of purpose in working with others. Building something great like my country, the United States of America, wasn't built by one person. It was built by the collectiveness of all of us, every one of us. And if it's going to be better in the future, then we must learn to communicate together and foster relationships which allow us a less depressive state and a more excitatory state. Because in the level of excitation of the brain comes things like problem solving, creativity, and joy. These are the things that built our country in the first place. And these are the things that'll give you purpose in your life. You are not damaged. You do not per se need medication to feel great. That's just you telling yourself that because you believe it. You get to make the choice whether you take the medication or whether you take the advice of the researchers which says there is nothing that says the medication is going to make the change. It can't make the change biologically. But if you take it and you believe it, then it can make the change. If you take a glass of water and breathe deep, it can make a change. Same thing. That's about the same innocuous function as the drug itself. So in your future, decide how to get back to connection. And the last little tidbit I just want to leave you with, because I didn't say it, it's about social interaction through social media. Social media can provide a very small bit of joy and happiness, but it doesn't last long because there's no human interaction where there's no touch, there's no visual contact. And these are the true steroids of feeling great and being connected. So yes, social media is a small outlet, but the biggest outlet is send somebody a text message, ask them if they'll meet you downtown for a cup of tea, sit together within their presence and laugh and look at their smile and enjoy their their overall demeanor and get to the real issues of life. That's what makes us go. That'll help you with your depression. It'll move you to the next level. So I'm going to leave you with the words of the king and hopefully you'll be inspired to make a big difference in your own life. This is Dr. P. See you next time on the Daily Inspirational Podcast. Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart?